As Dave mentioned, we are going to be concluding, or almost concluding, we have one more week next week, our sermon series in the book of Acts, in Acts 28. I know how many chapters are in the book of Acts because every week my son asks me, Dad, how many more chapters are in the book of Acts? (laughs) When we started the book of Acts, we were still in a pandemic. Will Smith hadn't slapped anybody. Elon Musk hadn't brought Twitter, or X. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard were not yet in trial. Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. We were still talking about a weed growing in the Collingswood bathroom, and Mount Laurel had wrinkly carpets covering everything. (laughs) And we did, at our first week in the study of Acts, it's appropriate that Dave uh, gave a little history lesson, because this was our first week, I believe, (laughs) of when we started. And if you wonder why Pastor Mark's an effective preacher, I mean, take a look at those eyes, right? You'd never fall asleep with those peepers gazing at you, right? Look at those things. So we've been on a little bit of a a journey through the book of Acts, and we've enjoyed doing this series and been on it for a while. We began the series with a single question. Pastor Mark posed this question. How could a religion whose central belief was in the work and teaching of a crucified man become the dominant belief in the Roman Empire? Believing that the book of Acts that we have walked through verse by verse, week by week, gives us the answer to that question. This crucified man became the one we shaped our calendars around, the most influential human in history, and the one we gather around as a church family this morning. Acts tells his story of the expansion of the church. And now we look at this, the coming down, the, 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 the landing of the plane by Luke. And this, this text that we're going to look at has, has the mood of a sunset. In Michigan, uh, there's a big twin lake where we go most summers, and there's a beautiful sunset that goes right over where we're able to see in the lake. This is big twin lake. And they say when you have young kids, there's no such thing as vacation, it's just relocation. And we go there and we enjoy very busy days of doing a lot of the things that we do here. But at sunset, there's just a moment. There's a moment when the kids are going down, the, the water that has been agitated by boats and wind all day settles down, and it's a reflective moment to sit and think about questions in life that maybe haven't had time to during the busyness of the day. I believe that's what Luke is going after as he writes this passage in Acts 28. If you'd read with us, as Luke sunsets the book, with a story that ties the themes that we have seen throughout the book together. Acts 28, verse 11. After three months, they were in Malta. We set sail in a ship that had withered, wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day, we came to Petuliae. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. 
And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came far from the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. This is calling back the story in Acts 23. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you. And since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear you and what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some of them were convinced by what he said and others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And I just want to pause right here. If you would remember the prayer and story that Joe shared right at the beginning of the service, I don't know if he looked at the text or not, but he prayed and cried out that our hearts would be soft, and I can't help but hear Joe's prayer as we read these words. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart had grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Lord, we come to chew on a big text. We we come to, to hear Luke as he is with Paul in this story. And we we come to to be people as Joe commissioned us earlier, people who turn, people who know the healing of a miraculous Christ because of willingness to bend the knee to the beauty of what he offers. We give our time to you. We pray for clarity as we look at this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things I want to point out in the text that, that, that I believe are also uh, encapsulating a lot of the themes that we have already seen in this book. The first is the way of Christ is always heading, it's a journey into the unknown known, into the unknown known. Acts 23 is is the beginning of this passage we're looking at. And we didn't go back and read the last five chapters because you've been tracking so diligently these last weeks. But in Acts 23 verse 11, Paul, Paul is uh, under threat in Jerusalem, and it says this, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you have testifi- testified about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify in Rome. 
From that moment on, Paul knew he was going to Rome. The road to Rome was known to Paul. The way Paul would get there would go through an incredible amount of different circumstances that he had no idea would be included in the story. He knew he was going to Rome. He knew the promises of God would hold true, but he had no idea of the mechanics to get there. And just a quick recap of the last few chapters and the last three to five years of Paul. There's a plot to kill him in Jerusalem. It was taken by Roman entourage. Uh, do we have a map up there? We might not have, don't have a map. Okay. He was taken by a Roman entourage to Caesarea. From Caesarea, he is there for multiple years because he is on, goes to Festus, and then Festus eventually is gone, and then Felix tries him, and then King Agrippa comes, and eventually he appeals to Rome. Then he goes on a ship, and he's traveling the distance from here to, to uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, and he is going and eventually um, ends up on the island of Malta, shipwrecked. He's almost killed by a snake, almost killed by Roman centurions and almost killed by the sea. Yet God said, you're going to Rome. In this passage, if I were doing the headings that you have in your Bibles, it says Paul arrives in Rome. I would put Paul finally arrives in Rome. Paul trusted in the known promises of God, but as he did, his life was continually thrown into unknown circumstances. That's so much like God. That's so much of what it is like to follow as a faith pilgrim, to know and to see again and again that God makes good on what he promises but also to know the mechanics and the timing and the situations of what it takes to get there are largely unknown to the pilgrim of faith. When we follow Jesus, we are always facing a new beginning. This is the life of a pilgrim, trusting the ancient and the new promises God gives through circumstances we never expected. Major Ian Thomas says that, that Christ never leads us into independence. We are never entering a season of life where we need him less. Paul, we see here, is not in the way he's operating in this text and the way we've seen him operate throughout Acts is not that he was against looking at strategies or thinking through how to go about spreading this message, but that ultimately Paul's mind was not fixed on strategy. He was asking a question of Jesus, where are you taking me right now? This means a major part of our lives must include seeking the will of God for the next step. Not just asking questions of what kind of house do I want for my family, but asking questions like, God, do you want me to move into this neighborhood? Not asking questions of well, what type of college sounds the best to me, but saying, God, what are you preparing me to do in this world and, and how, where do you want to place me for that purpose? Not just asking and looking at, okay, when can I retire, but asking when does my mission change from workplace to a new mission? 
Not just asking as we're thinking about a spouse of who am I attracted to, what do I want, but God, what are you asking of me to look for in a spouse? We are asking questions continually, understanding the big promises of God, but holding open hands because getting there is always going to be, include things we did not think it would include. Following Christ is a journey into the unknown known. I want to say something about succession. Dave mentioned we're in a season of succession. This is not a succession update um, to give information. This is a moment where I was reading the text this week and just thought, if we want to live out Acts, we have to live it out as a faith community in how we do succession. We're about to enter an unknown place as a church. There's not been a person that has ever had a different senior pastor than Mark Willie at this church. We don't know what that means. We don't know what it's like to transition leadership after this many years. Many years. <laughs> it, is, it is unknown, right? We are heading into the unknown. Many of us have looked at studies of, of what happens when a founding pastor retires. We don't want to look at them long because they're not encouraging a lot of the time. It's a difficult thing as a faith family to, to, to have a shock to the system like losing the primary patriarch. As we look at this text, this is what I want to say to us this morning. As God takes us into his known promises, into an unknown season, I have been asking questions personally about the future succession of this church for seven years. Uh, I have pestered many of the pastors as they get older. When are you thinking of retiring? Please don't let it be yet. And when you do, give us a really long runway. And so a lot of the people who, who, have, who have gone before and been so faithful, we're asking because we want to know what is happening next and how we can prepare for it. These seven years, because Pastor Mark has been kind to, to give us the date ahead of time because he wanted to save his marriage. Um, <laughs> so there had to be an end date, but uh, he gave his date ahead of time and we've been thinking and praying about this. And I want to tell you, as a pastor and leader in this church that I love, I am no less certain of what God is going to do today, than, or, or no more certain than any of the six years prior to this. This process is one where he is calling us to trust. Matter of fact, I often hear certainty from other people about this is what's gonna happen. I know it's gonna happen. They already have this figured out. It's gonna be this, it's gonna be that. They're gonna do this, they're gonna go there. They're gonna... The more confidence that someone has, I feel like is the further away they are from the actual conversation in this conversation, you will not find a group of leaders sitting, conniving, and strategizing of how to win over your perspective. If you pull back the curtain, you will find leaders on their knees saying, God, what do we do now? And thinking through big questions, but doing so with trust. These are some words that I have heard 
some of them I have said, I'm sure, but with something along the lines of we can have the perspective like this. When we do succession, we have to do it like this church did it. Perhaps I hear more often, when we do succession, we can't do it like the way these churches did it. We have to do it a certain way. It's our DNA to hire from within. The pastor, the next pastor, must come from within our church and staff. It would be wrong or different to try anything else. Or we've known all these pastors for a long time, and it sure would be nice to get some other pastors around here. So we can't do anything but go out and find somebody else the primary gift of the pastor must be a great preacher. Primary gift of the pastor must be an innovative leader. Primary gift of the pastor must be a collaborator and get along with everybody. It's so easy when we feel insecure to be able to hold on to, it must be this way. Can I say, as a man who's got my family in this church, person who loves you very much, I want to honestly say, and I'm involved in some discussions, not all, at the end of the day, I get one vote like many of you all, and that's as much responsibility as I want, but at the end of the day, this is about what God's going to do, and God has not shown us the script yet, so as we walk in faith and trust, please, Let's remember that we are people who are looking into the unknown, knowing God will get us through, but not knowing what he's going to do. That's a gift as a faith community, but it's scary. I think this is what we see in how Paul lived his entire ministry. Second point, and I can breathe easy now because I got over the succession stuff. <laughs> The way of Christ includes opposition. See in verse 21, that these religious leaders that he calls together and he's talking with these religious leaders and he's telling them the story and you sort of feel in the text that he's saying, you probably heard all about me, you know what was going on, you, you were all in on what happened in Jerusalem and Caesarea and you got all the uh, Twitter updates of all the arguments I had and then they returned and said this to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers who has come here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For, regard, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken. Who's got the text? What does it say? Against. Everywhere it is spoken against. Not everywhere it is spoken about. And they're saying, Paul, I know you got a place in the story and it's great to hear from you, but really we're just hearing about this whole way, this whole sect. It's called the way. It's called, uh, they're called Christians in the book of Acts. But this whole following of these Jesus people, we're hearing about it. And every time we hear it, everywhere we hear, it's not spoken about. It's spoken against the way of Christ includes opposition. You can't craft the message of Jesus into an easy message that everyone's always going to like. He just doesn't fit into the paradigm of, of being molded into our own image. 
And there are so many things that we have seen in the book of Acts. There are things we see in the explanation of Paul that the way of Christ is attractive and beautiful and blood bought by himself. It is filled with grace and freedom. But there's always also an aspect of following Jesus that's really hard. You look at the circumstances that God led Paul through. Paul, who would shortly after our text lose his own life. And it is a call to a truly new and different way. And to this way, this new and good living way, there is opposition. There are martyrs in the early part of Acts. Paul is stoned, beaten, left for dead like a million times. Tried by lots of trials. Has 40 men vowed to not eat or drink until they kill him. Accusation and rumor was growing in the Roman Empire. They looked at this large, growing sect of Jesus people and they had three major accusations and rumors that they would spread about them. First, they said, these people are a bunch of cannibals. Don't go to them because they talk about eating the body and blood of Jesus. So don't go at their cannibals. Other thing was they're incestuous. They call everyone brother and sister and always talk about love. That's creepy. Don't go near them. The thir- that's really an accusation. The third one is uh, they were called um, atheists because they were denying all the different Roman and Greek gods of mythology and the history there. They're denying so many of these gods. They're actually atheistic. They had the opposition of accusation and rumor. rumor. Nero, shortly after this, burns five-eighths of Rome, turns around, blames it on the Christians because he's like, okay, I, I got to somehow shorten the, this deck of cards that's growing so much. I've got to be able to cut it back. There is opposition, rumor, everything. And yet... The, the message of Christ goes on. This, we were talking at Word Partners, the thing that Dave was teaching us a couple weeks ago in the book of Ephesians. We talked about the, the armor of God. And like, I love sweatpants so much, right? Like if people didn't have sweatpants at another time in history, that is a real shame because they're just the best. I was thinking about this armor of God and like thinking about the breastplate and the helmet and the sword. And I'm like, that's a lot of stuff to carry around, right? That, that's not comfortable. That's a really far place from my Nike sweatpants, which I love, okay? But this is, and I started thinking about what you're doing is suit up, stand up in the armor of God. And I thought that, that sounds like a really, that's a tall task. That doesn't sound easy. It sounds uncomfortable and heavy and difficult. And they don't get to get in cars. They're walking around with all of this and all kinds of weather. I'm a comfort guy, can you tell? But you won't, I don't think you think about that when you know there's an opposition. Then those very things that could seem like, whoa, that could be uncomfortable, they're actually the very thing that save your life. The way of Christ includes an opposition such that we need Christ and his armor to get us through. Lastly, the way of Christ is about submission and healing submission and healing. This again, this, this passage mirrors many conversations that Paul has had in the book of Acts with Jewish leaders and talking about what's this message? Is it going to go to the Gentiles? Yes, it's going to the Gentiles. Why is it going to the Gentiles? These are Jewish leaders coming forward and Paul is, is giving in the stanzas of this prophecy in Isaiah 
And he is juxtaposing here of saying the hearts of the Gentiles are open, whereas some of the hearts of these religious leaders are closed. When they had come to him to listen to him, it says in 23, they pointed a day and they had a great number of people come in, eventually listened and many turned away. And Paul says this stanza of prophecy, go to the people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, see but never perceive, perceive for the people's hearts, hear that, the people's hearts have grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known that salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Here is Paul is finishing his last sermon that he's going to give in the book of Acts. Chapters have been dedicated to the teaching of Paul. And in this last sermon, he uses this prophecy from Isaiah. And it's interesting what Paul is talking about. He's not saying, hey, give mental assent to this way. That just, if you could only lock in the fact that all of these tenets are true, that that is the, that is all you need for this way. He's talking about a bending of knee, a giving of will, a decision of the heart. I was talking with someone here this week and we were saying, the devil has better theology than we do. I really believe that. I think the devil could write a better doctrinal statement than your pastors could. The devil knows as the information about who God is, what his character is like, what he loves, how he operates. He knows that well. But more than just knowledge, the book of James says that the, even demons believe in God, but it's not about just a sense of cognitive assent. It is about turning and healing. It is about a giving over of the self to the Christ, the way of Jesus that we see in the book of Acts, that we see lived out in Paul, this story and story after story is ultimately a bending of the knee to say, Jesus, I give myself wholly to you. I had a student once when I was doing youth ministry, and I don't know, this guy must have been hopped up on testosterone pills or something, because he went from like this little kind of smaller kid and then he all of a sudden like just beefed up and he in the gym all the time his name was Alex and uh Alex got all into the word alpha he's like oh man one time I was in the car with him this is a true story driving down the road and he and he goes hey hey who do you think's the alpha of this car and I'm like I don't know like I'm driving us but that's a weird question. I never thought about it. And we keep driving. He's like, looks, and there's a field of like fourth grade girls soccer playing. And he said, you think I could take all them, just me, beat them all up? I'm just like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, like, what is this? But he had this mentality, and it, it lasted for a few years of like, oh, man, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one, I'm the one people need to respect, look up to. I'm the alpha. And uh, he did it in weird ways, but... I think it's, it's a cultural thing, right? Like, want to be the one who sets the pace. Want to be the one that is uh, not bending. 
There's a British poet, uh, William Ernest Henley. He, uh, besides having a great mustache, um, he, he wrote a poem that's probably just about as famous as any poem that's been written in Western thought the last 200 years. He wrote a poem that's published in 1888. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. You've probably heard it. It's the poem. It's titled Invictus, which means unconquered or undefeated. It says, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul. This poem, it encapsulates something that, that drives a lot of us, right? This poem is read by all kinds of celebrities. I'm sure it's in so many different locker rooms of how we can, if we get the attraction, it makes me feel strong. This poem is the direct opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that to come and know and to find healing, his words, is to turn from the own mastery and figurings of our life and to say, I come to give myself to someone else. There is no masters of their own fate in the kingdom of God. Real briefly, want to return to our beginning question. How did a crucified man become the most dominant religion in the Roman Empire? It was done by invitation, not force of will, not some type of physical invasion that Christ led through his church, not through political or cultural mastery or legal sophistication. It was done because this Christ came to offer and call people to something better than the kingdoms of earth that are built on competing alphas. He brought a benevolent kingship of lasting joy, peace, and eternal destiny. He establishes his kingdom out of love and victory and created a whole new movement of people who changed the world. Sunsets are moments to ask bigger questions than maybe we've had time for at other times. As we end this book, or we can get to the end next week, as we are, the sun is setting on this book and we read this passage in light of all of the messages of Paul, I don't know a, a better question to ask than what Paul has asked throughout the book of Acts. Very simply, will you bend the knee to the kingship, the lordship, the benevolent rule of Jesus Christ? Because to turn to him there, there is healing. Something about turning is it, it, it is often a one-time activity that we turn from ourselves to Christ and then we realize it's another one-time activity where we keep turning and we keep turning back. And as part of just the way we operate is a continual need to tune and turn. But I don't know any other way to, to ask the question. I realize it's a broad one. 
and it's a big one. It's not a specific, narrow application we have here. It's a question of your heart. Will you submit your life to the kingship of Jesus Christ? It might be an aspect of your life. That might be your entire life where he is leading you to. But as we seek to live out this way, this way of Jesus that he has nurtured through this book of Acts, we do so by seeking healing, by saying, Alpha God, my life is yours. Lord, we come before you. There's not a one of us that doesn't crave certainty and control. There's not a one of us that, that doesn't want to know. We only want to live in the known. We, the unknown is so scary. But Lord, we pray as you have led us through this series in Acts, as you have demonstrated what it means to follow you through the lives of these saints, may we leave the book of Acts not with just more knowledge of the missionary journeys, but with the knee bent to the king. May we live our lives turning to realize with my family, with my finances, with my, my safety, with where I live, with how I work, with what I do, that the ultimate way of this is not just a strategy of life, but a turning to say, God, you are king. What do you have for me now? We pray these things here in Mount Laurel, here in Collingswood, in the name for the cause and the glory of the one who scripts the story, Jesus Christ, amen.